the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. They paid their debt to society. That phrase is supposed to describe how someone convicted of a crime and done their time should be free to resume their life and that of their family. But that's rarely reality. An imaginative program, however, based in Seattle is aimed at transforming that situation. In this edition of Challenge 2.0, emerging from the prison beyond bars, the Prison Scholars Fund will explore that. So we are very fortunate to have with us uh, four people involved in different roles with the Prison Scholar Fund, uh, from founding it to participating in it. And so it's my pleasure to introduce at this time, Dirk Van Velsen, who is the founder of the program and the fund. Uh, Dirk, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And Yukio Redeb, who is a participant and a scholarship recipient. Yukio, thank you for joining us. For having me, glad to be here. And Sai Nimagata, uh, who is a board member of the Prison Scholar Fund and also has been a long-term volunteer. Sai, thank you for joining us as well in this taping. Thank you, Jeff. And Ruby King, uh, who works for BTTM, uh, generally known as Button, if I understand correctly. Let me begin with you, Dirk, if I may. Uh, you're the founder of the Prison Scholar Fund. What led you to realize the need for such a program and perhaps give us a little bit about your personal story in leading up to this. Sure, and those, those two really tie in together. So in my case, I was incarcerated from 1999 to 2015 for a series of commercial burglaries. And of course, you know, once you get to prison, that's not the greatest place to be. But you figure, uh, let's not do this again. You know, let's try to reinvent myself somehow. And, you know, education has always been a powerful force in my family. But I just, when I was younger, I didn't have the, you know, maturity or the delayed gratification to actually mm -hmm. study in school. So I figured, hey, I'll just get the Pell Grant and uh, what, a, what a great place to spend my time and really buckle down on my studies. Then I found out, you know, this is around 2000. Then I found out the Pell Grant was taken away from prisoners in 1994, mm. the tough on crime era. They kind of figured that being tough on prisoners is the same thing as being tough on crime. So they reduced, you know, funding, funding for educational programs inside a prison. Of course, if you actually want to be tough on crime, you increase funding for educational opportunities so that reduces recidivism. Um, so it took me a couple of years of trying to raise money myself, and that never really worked too well. But I finally reconnected with my father, and I was lucky. You know, I had a dad. He didn't, he didn't give up on me, and he had a checkbook. So, so I was, before you know it, I was, I was enrolled at University of Colorado at Boulder. They didn't have a degree option, so I went to Penn State. And they had the world campus. So I was able to get two degrees from Penn State before my release. That's when the, the need really presented itself to me. I, I would be in the day room going to school, um, studying my, my, my coursework. And I would see a lot of people who would come up to me and say, oh, man, I would do the same thing myself. You know, but the Pell Grant's not available. They might not have a father or, or a family member or somebody else to support them. So that, that's really when it, when it speaks out to you. It's like there's all these people who really want to change their lives and do something really productive. And then... What do you say to them? You know, it's like, bummer. Um, yeah. But because, but because I'm proactive, I figured, well, let's see if we can raise some money for, for my brothers and sisters here. And 
we kind of, that's what we did. We started the Prison Scholar Fund. So if I can ask uh, just sort of a more broad-based question, and that is, how does a Prison Scholar Fund work? Yeah, so when, when we were incarcerated, or when I was incarcerated, you know, pre-2015, we, we would put newsletters out in all these prison, prison magazines or prison newsletters, and we had little advertisements. And people would contact us and, and write us letters and say, hey, I'd like to go. Uh, we would send them an application they would fill out. And all this mail would co- go to my dad because my dad was kind of managing everything on the streets that I couldn't do from prison. Mm-hmm. He, he'd photocopy all the applications for us and we'd evaluate them inside of prison. And we were serving 24, uh, students in 24 different states before I got released. Wow. We, we served 110 people. And the, the money would come from foundations. So at this point, we had really no individual donors. We just had, we just wrote founda- to, um, two foundations. Mm-hmm. Um, the Annenberg Foundation in California is the first one to invest. And then once one foundation gets on board, then other people can, you know, they spread the word to their foundation friends. Mm-hmm. And before I was released, we raised $60,000 and supported, you know, 110 people. Well, uh, Yukio, let me ask you a question. And that is, tell us a little bit about your experience and you're a scholarship recipient. How did you become connected with uh, the Prison Scholar Fund? First hearing about it and then where you're going with that right now. Yeah, uh, let's see. When did I first get in touch with Prison Scholar Fund? Uh, it wouldn't have been until the last, like, I want to say year or two, probably in the last year, more specifically. Um, I was housed at Washington State Penitentiary from 2018 to 2022, which is past February. And um, I started going to school. I got my uh, I got my associate's degree in business stuff. Uh, I liked going to school while I was in uh, while I was in prison. I mean, you have a lot of time on your hands. What else are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I had learned from another friend of mine, very close friend of mine, he's actually also signing up for uh, trying to sign up for Prison Scholar Fund here in the next year or two. Um, he told me that uh, DOC can take away a lot of things for you. They can take away your good time. They can take away your commissary. They can take away your phone rights. They can take away your emails. Um, one thing they can't take from you is your, educa- ed- your education. Mm-hmm. That that struck home, and from that from that moment on, off and running. I'm school any chance I got. Uh, in 2020, I enrolled into a digital design class, focuses on front-end web development, a lot of Adobe Photoshop, Adobe Illustrator, and I met, uh, I met a number of other students uh, through that class, and um, I heard Dirk Van Belsen's name. And I was like, where was he at? Because I'm thinking it's just another, another dude we did time with, which, which is the case. And uh, we never actually crossed paths while we were both in prison, but um, I, we know a lot of the same people just because our focus was education throughout our sentence kind of a lot in the same circles like even though we don't really know each other uh well enough like our situations our stories are so similar in the fact that we both went to prison we both pursued education and mm-hmm. we're, we're continuing to kind of better ourselves and people around us kind of a thing um i basically asked my teacher to get a hold of uh, dirk Bevelsen and prison scholar fund in 2021 um we exchanged a couple emails and uh i released in february and got a, got in touch with them myself and applied and went through the interview, interview process and I'm in the scholarship and I'm enrolled in Coding Dojo. And you're looking for a position, as I understand. I'm looking for a position, correct. Uh, I can specialize in a lot of front end stuff at this point. Um, I'm really excited to be learning full stack web development. Uh, I'm really excited to learn all these other languages. I mean, it's a tool for me to use to create things. Um, And it's, I'm just super excited to do it. I mean, I like the work. I like logic. I like puzzles. Mm -hmm. It's a huge opportunity for me. Opportunity with a capital O. Nasai, uh, you've been involved with this for a long time. You're serving on the board, as a matter of fact. Uh, I'd like to hear a little bit more about what made this a compelling call for you to become involved. 
And what is your perception of how you move people from first getting exposed to this educational area, uh, coding, whatever it might be, uh, to actually then being ready to re-enter the workforce or enter the workforce perhaps for the first time in some cases? Yeah, so I think the Prison Scholar Fund first spoke to me for two reasons. One, I have a familial value for education. Education has changed uh, my parents' lives. And I believe strongly in making education an opportunity that's available for everyone, regardless of their background, right? And if you look at just how intersectional incarceration is and how it touches upon uh, economics and race and all of these other things, I just felt very strongly that the Prison Scholar Fund's mission of helping people who have been incarcerated find an education um, was something that I wanted to support, along with the idea of second chances in general, right? Um, I don't think that one mistake should define a person for the rest of their life. So how did this change your perception of who these people were and what possibilities they hold? Yeah, so one of my favorite memories actually is the moment that I found out that Dirk was uh, formally incarcerated because I was volunteering. I was still in college as an undergraduate at the time. And we were just talking and then Dirk mentioned like, oh yeah, no, when I got out of the prison or when I got out of the system and I was like, what? <laughs> like, I, I, I honestly did not know before um, because I had this preconceived notion of like, what, what do people who have gotten out of the system do, right? Absolutely. I didn't think that they were necessarily nonprofit founders. I didn't think that, that they were necessarily business leaders. Um, and so meeting Dirk and some of the other members of our board, like what, another member of the Prison Scholar Funds board is a very successful entrepreneur, mm -hmm. right? And so it just taught me that regardless of someone's background, it is, it is very, very possible that they're very capable and there might be a lot of people who might not have had the opportunity mm -hmm. to, to make something um, meaningful after their time in prison, but if given the opportunity, they could really make an impact. Ruby, I might pose a similar question to you, and uh, if I understand correctly, you haven't uh, formally hired anybody yet, but you're in that process. How did this change your perceptions as you started to go into the interview process with some job candidates? It's funny, like people have asked me before, like, why, like, you know, what, what about this? Like, why, why would you hire, you know, someone who's been formerly incarcerated? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? Why not? Like, you know, what, uh, what difference does it make to me? Uh, you know, I, everyone, you know, everyone comes to, you know, a, a job interview with a wide variety of experiences, mm -hmm. probably lots of which aren't listed on their resume. You know, I, you know, I, I don't know what they are. Um, you know, and all of those experiences inform them uh, in in what they're doing today. And you know, for people that are pursuing engineering specifically, you know. I know so many engineers with untraditional backgrounds, you know, that, that come from from all over the place. My team is made up of, you know, I think 80% of us have, you know, uh, unconventional or, or boot camp backgrounds. Um, so I, I welcome, you know, uh, anybody who who wants to join my team, uh, so long as they are, 
you know, curious and, and motivated and, and want to, to keep learning and keep growing uh, along with our company. One question I'd like to address, and when we talk about perceptions, uh, I think there's a perception that prison, a prison sentence is something that happens to someone else. Uh, I looked at some statistics that said there are 70 million Americans with prison records, and it said that was somewhat comparable to the number with bachelor degrees. Now, I don't know whether or not that number is exactly the same, but that was surprising. But uh, Dirk and then Yukio, I might ask you, is there a difference between who gets arrested, who gets prosecuted, as opposed to those who are actually involved in criminal activity? So this is a, this is a great story, and this kind of ties to what Ruby has to say. With you know, people come to the job interview with their, their baggage. A few decades ago, the White House did a survey of Americans in general, and they were asking people, "What have you done in your life that could have landed you in prison?" Mm -hmm. And it turns out, ninety-one percent of Americans have admitted doing something that was felony enough that could have landed them in prison, and not just county jail. So that's a year or more in prison. That's pretty serious stuff. 91% of Americans admitted doing something. And those are the ones who are being honest. Um, so when, when companies say, we don't want to hire those, or, those people that are formerly incarcerated, thinking they're protecting their workforce, well, 91% of your workforce has done something. You know, they just didn't get caught. So what you're doing is you're not hiring the people that you know what they did. <laughs> at, least you, at least you have an idea what they did. Um, so it's, it's, you know, and what I, I shared that story with this, a group of business leaders up in Gig Harbor, we had this community uh, business roundtable function. And they were all shocked. And they're, they're, but they were also like, everyone laughed too, because like, they realized it was pretty true. And then a lot of those CEOs and business leaders, they started sharing their stories like, oh, yeah, I remember, you know, I used to do this or, you know, even drunk driving. Yeah, that's a felony. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's pretty, pretty common. And of course, if you're not lucky, you know, if you, if you get caught or if you don't have the family, um, capacity to get out of it, or, you know, there's intersectionality that, that so I talked about, you know, race relations really have a, a different role in, mm -hmm. in prosecution. So thanks for asking. Yukio, any observations that you care to, uh, or perceptions you'd care to share on that? Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, uh, so, uh, I mean, how can I frame this? A little bit of context. My parents both emigrated to the United States in the seventies. Um, they're both from the South Pacific islands. And so they've dealt with, you know, uh, America since then. Mm -hmm. And um, I see it now that I'm a little bit older and that I've gone through prison myself. Uh, but they're, they're definitely, when you say uh, a prison sentence is something that happens to somebody else, right? It's, there's a lot of components that go into that, right? You have officers that are arresting, you have people that are calling and reporting the incident. You have judges that are sitting on the bench. You have lawyers that are arguing this. All these components come together. Everybody's human. Everybody along that chain from the cops to the judges to the lawyers, Everybody seems they're going, to, they're going to make mistakes at some point or another. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, there's a lot to it. We often hear the phrase uh, that someone has paid their debt to society and they're coming out and there's the idea that they should be free to resume their life or begin their life. But is that really, uh, is that reality? Uh, or are there a lot of after effects given the fact that someone has been incarcerated that make it very difficult for them to pick up? Uh, Dirk, I might begin with you simply because of you're taking uh, a high perspective on this from your development of the program. Yeah, actually, just a few weeks ago, I was talking to somebody at Berkeley, and they had done some research study on the collateral consequences of having a felony. And there's more than I thought. Apparently, there's 44,000 
ways a felony can impact your life moving forward anything from housing to jobs to to uh i don't even i don't know what's on those forty four thousand that list but when people saying hey he did his time he, you know he did he did his crime he did his time it's all behind him now he can just move forward but that's really not true mm -hmm. um we used to call people that you know are the people coming out of prison we used to call them returning citizens like they're coming out of prison and rejoining society but we don't use that anymore because they're, they're not citizens anymore. There's so many things that they can't do with that felony, you know, anywhere from gun ownership to voting rights in some states. Um, so they're really just sub sub Americans. And then there's that issue. Where are we at in terms of job applications, in terms of is it still required that somebody check a box uh, saying that they had spent time in prison or is that no longer required in some cases? Yeah, it depends what state it is. And it's, it's kind of it's almost a disservice to take the box away. So you, you think you're covering ground by removing the checkbox, mm -hmm. but, they, but that just means the employer can't ask you on the application. But then at the end of the job interview, they can ask you if there's a business purpose for asking that question. And the reason uh, that's a problem is we had a, a, a friend of mine who actually went through a different coding boot camp. He got out, uh, he got an intern, you know, he did a coding boot camp, long story there, but then he got an internship at Amazon. And he was working there for a number of months. And then after the internship, then he actually applied for the job. Mm -hmm. And then they said, oh, well, sorry, you're, you're, you're formally incarcerated. We're not going to hire you. Mm. The reason that's a problem is because so many, like he wasted seven months or so in this whole process until to find out at the very end, they're not going to hire him. So maybe, you know, I'm not saying we should have that box, but you got to have some indication if you're not going to hire them anyways, or, or if, how do you seal the record? Um, I know there's some uh, some movements out there that they actually try to scrub your record clean if you can show that you've you're you're, you're worthy. I guess the strategy that we at the Prison Scholar Fund have tried to take when it comes to presenting these candidates to companies is coming back to the intersectionality uh, that we were talking about earlier. You know, a background in incarceration is just like any other point of diversity, right? Mm -hmm. Um, it it gives our candidates a unique perspective, uh, and frankly, our candidates, in a lot of cases, work very hard. They have a drive in them to succeed that the yeah. average person might not necessarily have because um, they know what it's like to not to not have privilege. But at the same time, you know, we are fighting an uphill battle, right? Part of the reason why it's really important to have conversations like this with people like you, Jeff, is because. Mm -hmm we are actively trying to change a culture, right? Um, even companies, and we have, Dirk and I have had so many experiences with companies that they are open-minded and publicly they take the stance saying, you know, we're open to the idea of hiring people with uh, backgrounds in incarceration, but when it comes to actually, you know, committing financial resources uh, and giving these students internships and giving these students uh, full-time positions, these companies aren't necessarily showing up. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's a process of iteration for us. You know, what really excites me about this program is that, you know, I think the tech industry specifically, and, you know, there are big conglomerates out there and I, I can't speak to those, like this experience with Amazon, you know, um, but, you know, startups in this industry, I, I think, are uh, a really good place for, for this, um, you know, because 
we make our own rules, you know, like we don't have a huge bureaucracy saying, oh, you can't hire that person because they have this thing on their record. You know, we talk to someone, we get to know them, we look at their work and say, this is good work, like come mm -hmm. work with us, you know? Um, and so I think we are um, you know, much more open to, to providing those opportunities as well. Uh, when you take this high level experience that you have starting this program, running this program, how much of a difference does it make to have somebody come out and be employable and be able to get a job in terms of whether they never go back to prison again or whether they do re-enter the criminal justice system and get sent back to prison? Um, so I'll spring aboard off what Ruby said about their company makes their own rules. Well, as a nation, we also make our own rules when it comes to sentencing laws. You know, that happens in Congress and in the States. You know, these, these sentences aren't passed down by the hand of God, so to speak. It's like we create this system and the system is an over-incarceration. You know, we have 5% of the world's population. We have 25% of the world's prisoners. Wow. Um, we, we actually, there's no nation on earth that incarcerates more than we do. Of course, we don't really know what North Korea does because they don't publish their data. Um, but if, and if you think of like the, uh, the G8 or the G7, uh, we're, we're 25 times more higher, higher per capita incarceration than those, you know, Western civilizations. Mm -hmm. And so not only do we have this huge prison industrial complex, when they get out, then what happens? Um, there's, and there's, there's one really great study before we get into the recidivism part. Or actually, I'll do the recidivism part first. So basically, the, uh, the Bureau of Justice Statistics, they showed that within three years of release, uh, 60, about 68% recidivate, which means they get, they get uh, not necessarily back in prison, but rearrested. And then the actual reincarceration re is another number. Um, within five years, it is 75%, and with nine years, is 83% recidivate. It's a huge number. It's like almost everyone goes back or yeah. gets arrested or does some kind of violation that's not being a good citizen. And then on top of that, a really interesting study came out of Princeton uh, by Deva Pager, and she's passed away recently. Um, but she, she wanted to figure out how race has, has an impact on employability. And also a criminal record. So if you're if you're a white man in America with no criminal record, you get thirty percent callbacks from from job interviews. If you have a criminal record, you'll get seventeen percent callbacks. But if you're a black man with no criminal record, you'll get seventeen percent callbacks. But if you're if you're a black man with a criminal record, you'll get five percent callbacks. Wow. So basically, if you're black and you have a criminal record, you're basically unemployable. I mean, is you know, that's a very, very sobering fact. Uh, people that are watching this, people that are listening to this, what would you like them to take away from your experience, your knowledge? And uh, Sai, what would you like people to leave with? I think everyone inherently wants to contribute, right? I think we've, as a society, grown pretty cynical, right? And we come to snap judgments about the people around us and whether or not they are willing to pull their weight. And over the course of my time with the Prison Scholar Fund, I have, you know, read letters from people, talked to people who might have made mistakes in the past, but all they want with every fiber of their being is just to 
be a productive member of society, mm -hmm. support themselves and support the people around them. And the more that we can do to help the people around us be the best that they can be, I think um, the happier we will be as a community. So, I mean, for employers watching this, you know, I, I think it's kind of our duty to, to level the playing field. You know, everyone deserves a chance, you know, and, and with that in mind, though, you know, hiring should never be done in the name of altruism. It should be done with the intention of hiring the best person for the job. And what we need to do is give everyone a chance um, and then we'll find the best person for that job. Um, you know, for anyone else watching this or for people that have been, you know, formerly incarcerated, if you're watching this, um, send me your resume. I'd be happy to take a look. I suspect you'll get a few, maybe more than a few. Dirk, I'd like to give you the last word on this. What do you really want people to take away from this program and from your story and the story of everybody else that's participating in this? Um, and this was for Abraham Lincoln. And he said, any man can stand adversity, but to test his true character gives him power. And I think we, you know, you can, you know, I can speak from the adversity part, you know, prison's not great. It's, you know, you can make it through it, but when you make it through it, it, should, it, that should be the end of it. You would, you would hope. And then, so the people that have the power, they have the power to change laws. They have the power like Ruby to hire people. So if you exercise the power and you know, good faith of humanity, you know, you'll get the best candidates and let's do more of that. Well, I think, each of you for your participation, the powerful stories, the opportunity that's being held that uh, can not only change lives, but I think change society and change because we all work better uh, when we're including more people in the mix. So thank you each very much. And thank you for watching on this week's edition of Challenge 2.0. We hope you'll tune in again next week. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining and thought provoking and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization.